Lesson 10 for August 30 to September 5, The Law of God Sabbath afternoon, August 30 Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to open your word again, and each of us has our own personal needs, but this week we just pray for you for understanding through the work of the Holy Spirit on our minds as we open your word. We pray that we may more fully understand the grace that you provide through us through your law. In Jesus' name, amen. Our memory text this week is John chapter 14 and verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Let's read that again. John 14 verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Though many leaders in Israel highly exalted the law, some misunderstood its purpose, believing that they could obtain righteousness by obeying the law. As Paul was to write in Romans 10.3, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. This is why Jesus often questioned and even disapproved of the traditions of the religious elders, as in Mark chapter 7. And their misunderstanding was why they criticized and confronted him about his views of the law. It is important to understand that although Jesus criticized the openly legalistic practices of the Pharisees, he exalted the Ten Commandments, clearly affirming the perpetuity of the Decalogue and explaining its meaning and purpose. Christ himself said that he had come to fulfill the law in Matthew 5.17. In many ways, his death was the ultimate revelation of the continued validity of God's law. This week, we will analyze Jesus' teachings in regard to the law and the impact his teachings should have in our lives. Sunday, August 31. Jesus did not change the law. Question. What does Matthew 5:17-19 teach about Jesus' attitude toward the law? Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Although the word law is often used to refer to the first five books of the Bible, also known as Pentateuch or Torah, in this case the context seems to indicate that he was referring primarily to the Ten Commandments. When saying he had not come to destroy the law, Jesus is literally saying, I have not come to make invalid or abolish the Ten Commandments. His statement is very clear and probably meant to show that it was the religious elders, not he, who had been destroying the law, reducing its effect through their tradition. 
Let's have a look at Matthew 15 and verses 3 and 6, because it reads, He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? And then in verse 6, Then he need not honour his father or mother, thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. In contrast, by filling it with a deeper meaning, Christ had come to fulfil the law, thus giving us an example of what perfect obedience to the will of God looks like. And Romans 8 verses 3 and 4 read, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Question. Read Acts chapter 7 and verse 38. Who was the angel who spoke to Moses and gave him the law on Mount Sinai? And also look at Isaiah 63 verse 9 and 1 Corinthians 10 4. Why is this important? Well, first of all, Acts chapter 7 and verse 38. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. And the other verses are Isaiah chapter 63, verse 9. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. And 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Ellen White writes in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 366, Christ was not only the leader of the Hebrews in the wilderness, but it was he who gave the law to Israel. Amid the awful glory of Sinai, Christ declared in the hearing of all the people the ten precepts of his father's law. It was he who gave to Moses the law engraved upon the tables of stone. End of quote. The fact that Christ himself gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai makes it even more important for us to take it seriously. Also, if the lawgiver himself further explained it through his teachings, as we find in the Gospels, we would do well to obey that law. One would be hard-pressed to find in the life and teachings of Jesus anything implying that the Ten Commandments are not binding on Christians. On the contrary, his words and example teach us the opposite. And so to finish the day, though we know about the law and that it is still binding, we also know that it does not indeed, it cannot save us. Galatians 3.21 Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been given a law which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. How then do we understand the relationship between law and grace?
Monday, September 1, Jesus deepened the meaning of the law. After establishing the perpetuity of the Ten Commandments, Jesus continued his Sermon on the Mount, now setting forth a few specific examples of Old Testament laws. People had so greatly misunderstood these specific commandments that Jesus felt the vital need of explaining their true meaning. Question. What contrast did Jesus make with each aspect of the law mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount? To what authority did he appeal in each case? Well, let's read Matthew chapter 5 and verses 21 to 44. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly, while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, Do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Note that in each instance, 
Jesus' first sights, an Old Testament text. And we can find some of them in Exodus 20, verses 13 to 14. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery. And Deuteronomy 5, 17 to 18, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. And Exodus 21, verse 24, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And Leviticus 24, verse 2, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. And of course, then appears to argue against it. Was Jesus discrediting the law? Of course not. By further explaining and expanding what the religious leaders had narrowed down to nothing but formality, he was simply contrasting the teachings of the Pharisees with the true meaning of the law. The rabbis cited tradition as their authority for their interpretation of the law. In contrast, Christ spoke on his own authority as the lawgiver himself. The expression, but I say to you, appears six times in this chapter. Who alone but the Lord himself could rightly make a claim like that? What's fascinating too is that Christ's requirements went radically beyond the simple form of the law. His teachings included the spirit behind the letter of the law. The spirit imparts meaning and life to what otherwise can only be pure formalism. Law-keeping, in and of itself, as an end in itself, leads to nothing but death if the law is not understood as an expression of what it means to be saved by grace. And so, to finish today... Consider the scribes and Pharisees' attitudes as described in Matthew 23, verses 3 to 5, and 23, and verse 2, verse 28. Well, let's read those. 3 to 5, Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers." But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. And verses 23 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain at a gnat, and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones, and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. How can we obey God's commandments wholeheartedly without falling into similar hypocrisy and legalism? What crucial role does understanding grace play in sparing us from legalism?
Tuesday, September 2, Jesus and the Seventh Commandment. Question. How did Jesus expand the meaning of the law as seen in Matthew 5:27 and 28? What did he say in verses 29 and 30? How are we to take these words? You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. In this text, Christ refers to two commandments, the seventh and the tenth. Until then, the Israelites considered adultery to be only the overt physical sexual act with another person's spouse. Christ points out that in reality, because of the Tenth Commandment, adultery would include lustful thoughts and desires as well. In verses 29 and 30, Christ was using a figure of speech. Of course, one could argue that it would be better to go through life mutilated than to forfeit eternity with Christ. However, rather than pointing to mutilation, which would be contrary to other biblical teachings, as in Leviticus 19, verses 27 to 28, you shall not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor tattoo any marks on you. I am the Lord. And Leviticus 21 verses 17 to 20. Speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. For any man who has a defect shall not approach. A man blind or lame, who has a marred face or any limb too long, a man who has a broken foot or broken hand, or is a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man who has a defect in his eye, or eczema or scab, or is a eunuch. Jesus was referring to the control of one's thoughts and impulses. In his references to plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand, Christ was figuratively speaking of the importance of taking resolute decisions and actions toward guarding oneself against temptation and sin. Question. What did the Pharisees ask Jesus in Matthew 19.3 And why was it a trick question, as you see in verse 7? The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And verse 7, They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? What was Jesus' answer? Well, let's look at verses 4 to 9. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who has made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, 
Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And we compare that with Matthew five thirty one and thirty two. Therefore, where, sorry. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Both texts in Matthew five and nineteen are citing Deuteronomy twenty four one. In Jesus' day, there were two rabbinic schools that interpreted this text in two different ways. Hillel, that's H-I-L-L-E-L, understood it to allow divorce for almost any reason, while Shammai, S-H-A-M-M-A-I, interpreted it to mean only explicit adultery. The Pharisees were trying to trick Jesus into taking sides with one school or another. However, they had overlooked the fact that it was not God's original plan for anyone to divorce, ever, which is why Jesus said in verse, 16, verse 6 of chapter 19, What God has joined together, let not man separate. Later, because of the hardness of their hearts, they asked why God had allowed him to give his wife a certificate of divorce, if he found some uncleanness in her, as in Deuteronomy 24.1. Christ corrected the misuse of this passage by uplifting the sanctity and permanence of marriage. The only cause for divorce before God is sexual immorality or fornication, in Greek pornea, literally unchastity. So, to finish today, how seriously do we take Jesus' warning about plucking out our eyes or cutting off a hand? How much stronger a warning could he have given us about what sin can do to our eternal destiny? If this warning scares you, good, it should. Wednesday, September 3, Jesus and the Fifth Commandment During another encounter Jesus had with the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 15 and Mark 7, they questioned him about a tradition of the elders, one not found in the law of Moses. Let's just read the Matthew 15 account. Then the scribes and Pharisees, who were from Jerusalem, came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honour your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honour his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honour me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
when he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. This tradition stipulated that one should ritualistically wash his hands before eating, something Jesus' disciples had neglected to do. Christ immediately responded by citing another tradition of the Pharisees, one that invalidated the fifth commandment. Before analysing Christ's argument, we need to understand that the tradition the Pharisees had established, called Corban, comes from a word that means a gift. When a man applies the words, it is Corban, to anything, it was considered an oath. It was something dedicated to God and the temple. Question. Read Mark, chapter 7, verses 9 to 13. In what ways was the Pharisees' tradition such a subtle way of violating the fifth commandment? Consider the importance of presenting offerings before God. Read Exodus 23.15 and 34.20 and the sacredness of an oath made before the Lord as expressed in Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 to 23. Well, let's start with Mark 7 at verse 9. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honour your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is, a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. And many such things you do. Well, let's look at Exodus chapter 23 verse 15 to see where this comes from. And you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the mouth of Abib. For it is in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. And 34.20 But the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem him, then you shall break his neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem and none shall appear before me empty-handed. And the sacredness of an oath in Deuteronomy 23, 21-23, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be a sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be a sin to you. 
That which has gone from your lips you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord, your God, what you have promised with your mouth. It seems as if the Pharisees had found the perfect excuse to deny one's parents their rightful support. They had expanded the solid principles found in the Pentateuch and transformed them into man-made commandments, which, in their leader's own thinking, could supersede one of God's commandments. This isn't the only time Jesus dealt with the same spiritual perversion. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all kinds of herbs, and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Luke 11.42 They should have kept both commands, first by honouring their father and mother without leaving aside their giving to the Lord. No wonder Jesus summed up his arguments by applying to the Pharisees a description Isaiah made of the Israelites 700 years earlier. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 15.8 Once again, Christ upheld the Ten Commandments and contrasted his position with that of the Pharisees. So, to finish today, in what ways might you be seeking little technical loopholes in order to avoid doing what's clearly your duty. Thursday, September 4. Jesus and the Essence of the Law Question. Read Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 22. From the immediate details of this specific story, what broad and important truths can we derive from this account about the law and what the keeping of the law entails? Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honour your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go, sell what you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The rich young man couldn't comprehend that salvation from sin does not come from following the law, even strictly. It comes rather from the lawgiver, the Saviour. The Israelites had known this truth since the beginning, but they had forgotten it. Now, Jesus set forth what they should have heeded from the start, that obedience and full surrender to God are so united that one without the other becomes only a pretense of Christian life. 
As Ellen White writes in The Desire of Ages, page 523, nothing short of obedience can be accepted. Self-surrender is the substance of the teachings of Christ. Often it is presented and enjoined in language that seems authoritative, because there is no other way to save man than to cut away those things which, if entertained, will demoralize the whole being. End of quote. In another encounter, the Sadducees had been questioning Christ about the resurrection, and Jesus had astonished and silenced them with his answer. So now the Pharisees gathered together, ready to make a final attempt to lead the Saviour into saying something that they could interpret as being against the law. They chose a certain lawyer to question Jesus about which was the most important commandment. In Matthew 22, verse 35, then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The lawyer's question probably arose from the attempt of the rabbis to arrange all the commandments by order of importance. If two commands appeared to be in conflict, the one assumed to be more important took priority and left a person free to violate the less important one. The Pharisees particularly exalted the first four precepts of the Decalogue as being more important than the last six, and, as a result, they failed when it came to matters of practical religion. Jesus answered in a masterful way, First and most important, there must be love in the heart before anyone can begin to observe God's law. Obedience without love is impossible and worthless. However, where there is true love toward God, a person will unconditionally put his life in harmony with God's will as expressed in all ten of his commandments. That is why Jesus later said in John 14:15, If you love me, keep my commandments. Friday, September 5. From the little book Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, pages 48 and 49. Speaking of the law, Jesus said, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That is, to fill up the measure of the law's requirement to give an example of perfect conformity to the will of God. His mission was to magnify the law and make it honourable. That's Isaiah 42, verse 21. He was to show the spiritual nature of the law, to present its far-reaching principles and to make plain its eternal obligation. Jesus, the express image of the Father's person, the effulgence of his glory, the self-denying Redeemer, throughout his pilgrimage on, of love on earth, was a living representative of the character of the law of God. In his life, it is made manifest that heaven-born love, Christ-like principles, underlie the laws of eternal rectitude. 
That brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One, in what ways can we fall into the temptation of being legalistic in our observance of the law as the Pharisees were? On the other hand, what danger exists when we assume that loving God exempts us from obeying his law? Make a list of practical ways in which we could avoid falling into one or the other pitfall in our days. Bring your ideas to share with your class. Two, as we know, the argument against the continued validity of the Ten Commandments often is nothing but an attempt to get around the seventh-day Sabbath. Review all the Sabbath healing stories in the Gospels. How do they affirm not only the continued validity of God's law, but also of the seventh-day Sabbath? Why are the words and examples of Jesus the last place anyone who wants to deny the Sabbath should go? And three, Theologians sometimes talk about a moral universe. What does that mean? How is our universe a moral place? If it is, what do you think makes it so? What role could God's law have in a moral universe? Could the universe be a moral place without God having a moral law to govern it? Discuss this. How does the idea of God's law in a moral universe help explain Satan's attempt to undermine the law? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Labour of Love. Muthu is a Bible teacher in a Seventh-day Adventist high school in southeastern India, but his ministry extends beyond the classroom. He takes students and adults to villages to hold branch Sabbath schools. Most of the villagers know little about Jesus. The children come first, gathering under a tree to hear stories and sing songs. Then team members visit villagers' homes to pray for the sick or discouraged. Eventually, adults join in the meetings. One day, Muthu visited a village and discovered that heavy rain had damaged an old mud house, causing it to collapse and leaving the woman who lived there homeless. She had leprosy, and no one would go near her. Instead of holding Branch Sabbath School, Muthu and his team cleared the debris from the home site. Soon villagers pitched in to help as well. They cut some poles and stretched a tarp over them for a temporary shelter. During the week, Muthu and his team began building a small, sturdy house for the woman. The villagers saw that no harm came to Muthu or his teammates, and they began treating the woman as one of them again. Some gave her clothes and household goods to replace what she had lost. The next Sabbath, the woman met Muthu and begged him to come to her house. There she pointed to large, two large gunny sacks filled with coconuts. These are my offering, she said. Muthu was touched as he realized that this woman had gathered about 100 coconuts and carried them one by one to her little home. Her labor of love had taken her all week. Today, a large group meets in the village for worship. The village has no church of any denomination, but they welcome the Adventists because they know these people care. The nearest church is three or four families, five or six kilometres away, and there's no reliable transportation. 
the new believers are learning to pray and are asking God for a church in their village. Thousands of villages such as this one have only a stone God to worship. The people still wait to hear that Jesus loves them and wants to live with them forever. Our mission offerings help to make it possible for these people to have a simple church in which to worship God and invite others to worship Him as well. Your reader this week has been Dr. Percy Harold. The lessons have been brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember that God is always faithful.